Hi everyone, today is October 23rd, 2014. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is Michael Drew. Hi, Michael. Hi. He is an assistant professor of neuroscience at the Center for Learning and Memory at UT Austin. Uh, his research concerns the role of adult hippocampal neurogenesis in memory and behavior and how neurogenesis might be a measure of brain plasticity that has differential effects on cognitive versus emotional behavior. That's pretty specific. Yeah, yeah that, that sounds okay. Sounds good. Okay. Um, uh, around the room, we've got Doug Groh, recent grad student or current grad student, sorry, uh, in Annie Lynn's lab here at UTSA. We've, uh, hi, Doug. Hi. <laughs> we've got Charlie Wilson. Hello. We've got Todd Troyer. Hello. And me, I'm your host, Selma Karashi. So, Michael, your um, work is a, a very cool integrative slice into probing how cellular-level events impact large-scale behavior. And you're using both psychological and molecular tools to figure out how psychological processes depend on adult-born neurons in the, in the dentate gyrus. But there seems to be this kind of bi-directional regulatory mm-hmm. relationship between behavior and hippocampal neurogenesis. Um, how much... Can we think about behavior impacting neurogenesis and neurogenesis impacting behavior? And then, okay, we'll mm-hmm. go ahead with that. Yeah, um, that's a really interesting question. And I think, um, for the most part, they've been studied in in isolation, right? I mean, the uh, the 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 some of the first studies about the impact of uh, of behavior on neurogenesis. Uh, there was a there's you know work that's famous now from Fred Gage's lab uh, showing that environmental enrichment stimulates neurogenesis. Exercise is a big, actually exercise might actually be the part of enrichment that's doing that, that stimulates proliferation um, of neurons. Um, and then there was work from Tracy Shores and others showing that doing these, cog- these cognitive tasks like trace conditioning um, doesn't probably stimulate proliferation, but uh, affects the survival of newborn cells. And, um, so one of the questions coming out of that work was whether, uh, you know, so you're, you're doing this cognitive task and you're making these cells that would have died, you're making them survive. Um, do those same, are those, is that a mechanism for the actual memory? You know, that are you learning the trace task, you know, because of those cells that survived and, uh, it's probably not, it probably doesn't work that way because that, that, uh, death, uh, that survival versus death decision, cell fate decision happens um, before these cells seem to be fully integrated into the circuit. So it seems like there's there's an independence there that you have manipulations that affect proliferation or survival, um, and um, the cells that proliferate or survive are not participating in that particular event. They're there for something else down the road. And so I think the way I think about it, and I, I, I think other people maybe think the same way, is that um, it's some kind of feed-forward mechanism for preparing uh, for future events. I mean, what the, the, the behavior... So what are you thinking about in terms of the behavior, in terms of preparing for future events? I guess preparing is a loaded word there, yeah, right? Yeah. So that, but what, kind of, what, what kind of behavioral kinds of things would you think trigger that besides, you know, exercise is like, it's good for you just yeah. in general. Maybe you're just healthy and it helps mm-hmm. as a tonic thing, but not you, when you yeah. say. Well, exercise, that's a loaded question too, isn't it? I mean, 
So let's just say enrichment for now <laughs> uh, and be a little bit agnostic, but enrichment. So imagine, you know, enrichment to write your, your, that means you're, you're taking an animal from this simple impoverished environment and moving them to something that's more complex and interesting. And so you can imagine that being in this complex, interesting environment means that, uh, you know, your, your information processing load is higher and your brain needs to prepare itself for that. And so uh, you're stimulating the production of neurons so that you can accommodate this information that's coming at you. But it's, it's, there's a continuum there. There's sort of a U-shape. Because then when you get into things like psychosocial stress, which may be like the extreme form of a complex environment or enrichment, you end up on the other end of the spectrum where you're actually inhibiting. Is that right? Is yeah, that that's right? right. Yeah, although I wouldn't think of that, um, I wouldn't think of that as, as a... I see what you're saying, but I, I mean... Certainly not enrichment. Certainly not enrichment. That's the opposite. But if you're thinking of it in terms of complexity, I mean, I don't yeah. know what the definition of stress is if, in these studies, but... Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, so, you know, well, that's another... Uh, you know, so, yeah, so there's definitely a lot of work showing that psychosocial social stress, you know, so being uh, subjected to... Um, uh, a predator or um, a larger conspecific um, that you know is antagonizing you. These kind of definitely things not definitely, enriching. Yeah. definitely suppress <laughs> neurogenesis, and they also cause they induce anxiety-like behavior. Um, they can induce helplessness, um, and those are usually go along with a suppression of neurogenesis. So, how common is? Um, adult neurogenesis in the dentic jars how much of the of, of it is is adult generated yeah that's a that's a really good question um so people have addressed that um people like amelia aish um and others have addressed that um using this pretty elegant um transgenic approach where um um the uh, 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 neural stem cells are expressing an inducible cree and um, when you induce these mice, you can then um, express some marker like a GFP or something like that in the progeny of those cells. And uh, so after the induction, all the progeny, all the adult born neurons express GFP, something like that. And uh, these experiments were really exciting when they first came out a few years ago because everybody wanted to know, well, if you wait long enough, you induce them and you wait long enough, how much of your dentate is going to be green, right? Um, how, many, how, much, you know, how, how much of it is going to express the marker? And um, different labs have used this approach and gotten different results, but it seems like it's less than 10%. It's not like your whole dentate is turning over and turning green. It's a, it's a small fraction, 10%, um, maybe less than that. Um, so um, it it's, seems to be the case that there's, a, there's a, like a population of granule cells that are turning over and maybe regenerating, and then there's another population, maybe the developmentally generated population, that is static and is not, is not dying very often, but also not... Uh, regenerating. Can you differentiate these guys anatomically, the two groups? Because well, they seem pretty, I mean, if you look at the pictures, they seem in various stages of maturity. They're very branched. They're, and they look like they're integrating. Is that right? I mean, what do we know about this immature pool of neurons in terms of their um, connectivity? And Yeah, so um, the, um, 
they're mostly confined, but not exclusively, to the inner half or the inner third of the granule cell layer. Um, and then the outer uh, half or, or two-thirds is mostly developmentally generated. And so you can figure that out if you injected BRDU in, a, in an embryo or something and you look at where it ends up. Um, um, aside from that, um, in terms of you asked about con connectivity, um, there isn't very much known. Um, I mean, aside, but there are a few ideas that are going around. And, I mean, there's, there's recent work um, from Henriette uh, van Prague, who um, was using this, this really elegant and but complicated um, system with um, a virus that um, it is um, transmitted uh, from a postsynaptic cell to a presynaptic cell. And she was able to identify the uh, inputs onto immature neurons. Um, and it, it, it did look like um, the um, immature pool and the fully mature pool were differentially uh, receiving inputs from um, lateral and medial and arinal, which represent different types of information. But aside from that, um, there, there wasn't, uh, that, I mean, that's kind of a subtle difference. Um, and the other interesting, on, on the other side, on the output side, um, there are also some interesting ideas. And one of them is, you know, just to kind of, I actually kind of back up a little bit and think about the big picture. Um, you know, what is the, uh, what is the effect of on the dentate circuit of having adult born cells or not having them, right? Um, uh, we think of the dentate, you know, it's one of its key properties is its sparseness, right? The fact that very few cells participate in any sort of event, you know, are active during any epoch in time. Um, but the young neurons um, are probably more excitable. And so the young neurons actually would sort of be um, uh, a force against that sparseness, maybe, right? If they're more excitable. Um, so so is, it, is, that, is that an inference in the sense that... Uh, so they're more excitable based on, you know, uh, slice recordings or something. Yeah. Uh, or you know, the immature neurons are more excitable, but I don't know if there's any direct evidence that they're more active in vivo. In real life, yeah. Uh, in vivo, yeah. Um, well, that is... Uh, so in, with using in vivo uh, electrophysiology... Um, Nobody um, has published anyway yet. Uh, Pretty tricky to identify that newborn cell in vivo, right? Yeah. yeah right. But, if you, but if you found some, like, yeah. if you found some more active cell, yeah, uh, some population kind of thing, and then you turned off neurogenesis and then you did the same thing, you didn't find them. That would be at least indirect evidence that you got rid of. But you worked pretty hard for what's going to be called indirect evidence. Yeah, yeah, I understand. <laughs> I understand. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I know people are trying to use, like, you know, optogenetic silencing or stimulation. So that way you can sort of, you can hear which cell, you know, which cells are the young ones or not. Um, but, yeah, nothing like that's been published yet. I, I think that'll be super interesting. The best we have so far is looking at, like, immediate early genes and sacking the mice and 
see which cells are expressing immediate early genes. And that, that's also been kind of complicated. Initially, we, we, you know, there's, there's some evidence that um, the immature ones are actually more likely to express immediate early genes than the, the ones that aren't immature. Um, but even, even that seems like some, some people see that, some people don't see that. My own lab, I think we do see that. You know, so what effect, uh, let's just say they are, they are more excitable. Um, does that mean that they're sort of reducing the sparseness in the dentate? And uh, that could be true or could not. I mean, so one idea that, that's been floated is that maybe these, these immature cells um, are preferentially synapsing onto interneurons in the, in the dentate. And so there's some kind of polysynaptic inhibition that they're enforcing. Um, and um, uh, there's some, some data to that effect. So uh, a colleague of mine... Mark Sahai had a paper recently where uh, they were um, ablating neurogenesis in, in a slice and then looking at um, uh, activating perforin inputs into the, into the dentate, and they found that the, the dentates without neurogenesis actually had a sort of a bigger postsynaptic response to those, um, to those inputs. Um, so functionally, does that make sense? I mean, why would I want the cells that are engaged in it? in a uh, recurrent inhibitory circuit to turn over more than the others. <laughs> right? I mean, that, so the simple, the simple idea that, I guess, too simple to be true, but too cool to be true, too, too good of a hypothesis to test, yeah. is that all the old neurons have already learned everything they can learn and formed whatever associations they can. Yeah. And to learn new things, you just have to have new neurons that can now encode new combinations of inputs yeah. and can learn to do that. And then once they've done that, they shouldn't change what they're doing because then you forget whatever it is that they know. Mm -hmm. And so you have to keep feeding new neurons into it. I mean, it's too good of an idea mm -hmm. uh, to, to test, as they say, but it looks like it doesn't really stand up because... If it if it did, mm -hmm. then the number of cells in the dentate gyrus would be increasing throughout life, and that doesn't seem to be the case. It always seems that. The, Wait, why the, why is that? Well, oh, you just said that the adult born neurons stay at about ten percent. Yeah. So if the number of neurons are, uh, if the adult born neurons were accumulating, mm -hmm. they would come to become, represent more than ten percent of mm -hmm. that dentate gyrus and in, in order for and our memories accumulate and so those cells should accumulate if they correspond one to one with memories yeah, mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. so that's uh, well we don't know that our memories accumulate in the hippocampus right uh -huh. they could accumulate but um, there's also this systems consolidation thing that happens too right so so if but if the neurons are so like if dentate gyrus neurons represent some unique combinations of input, and once they've learned that, they are kind of used up for mm -hmm. learning things. And then you add a new one, mm -hmm. and so therefore you know a new combination. Um, you don't want to lose that, do you? If that cell's just going to be turned over later, aren't you just going to lose it? So, they, mm -hmm. so maybe those... Maybe you could rescue my... Like wonderful, simple-minded idea yeah. by saying, well, there's like things you need to remember forever, and there's some things you just need to remember for a little while. Mm -hmm. And you could put the things you need to remember for a little while in this turning over population of neurons, and the things you need to learn forever, you have to keep to somebody else. Mm -hmm. Like the old, good old 
charter members of the Dentate mm-hmm. Well, it actually makes it, you can make it even, yeah. it make a little bit more sense if you, people talk about the Dentate as being in, in not just memory per se, but a lot of it has to do with novelty detection mm-hmm. in terms of determining what's new. So, Maybe after a certain age, there's not that much new, or the, the stuff that's important is there's not much new contingencies to learn. So you need to know whether you know that you've seen this before or not, and that's a lot of the things that you need to decide whether this is an, a situation that's new or not has been built up, and you do that okay when you're in development. And there's just a few things that change, like when you're older, and you need to know whether this is new or not. And, Maybe if you're old, you can't decide whether something's new anyway. You think everything's old. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I uh, take offense. <laughs> <laughs> How long did he still stick around? Do we know that? Do we have an answer to that question? Uh, which one? The newly born. The newly so. born ones. Yeah, so um, it, it seems like if they make it through those first few weeks, then they, they at least in the rodents, they stick around for a while. You know. Um, but you have to square that with the finding that um, there's not this complete turnover and the dentate's not growing. It's probably growing a little bit over the course of the lifespan, but, but not commensurate with all the neurogenesis that happens. So something's got to be dying. And uh, it's, probably, it's probably those, uh, those adult-born ones. But I actually like Charlie's idea, and that was... Um, the idea that uh, you know cells cells learn things when they're young, and then they preserve things when they're old, right? It, it is a simple idea, um, and actually something that we're we're trying to test right now. And the way to test that, uh, I think, is to um, you know so so we you know our hypothesis is that you have cells when they're you know a few weeks old, um, they're important for learning, um, and then. Um, after those cells mature, the question is, do you still need those cells for maintaining what you earlier learned? Um, and so uh, the way we've been trying to get at that is to develop um, a way to specifically express um, a silencer in just a single cohort of cells, you know, so the cells that are around this week. Um, and then uh, the, the animal learns something. And then the question is, if we silence that cohort a week later or a month later or six months later, uh, what is the impact on memory retrieval? I don't have the answer yet. But um, I'm actually thinking that um, they... So here's what we're finding so far with, with fear conditioning. Um, we've, we've, uh, we've tried to start really simple where we, instead of just silencing the adult-born cells, we just silence the whole dentate gyrus. And we find that silent, uh, we do contextual fear conditioning, which is like a hippocampus-dependent version of conditioning, uh, fear conditioning. If you silence the dentate during acquisition, you get a memory impairment. If you silence the dentate... By silencing, you mean um, inhibiting neurogenesis? No, 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 just or, shutting off oh, the granule cells. Okay, the first experiment. Yeah, silencing the granule cells. Okay. Um, but if you learn something and then silence the granule cells at retrieval, we don't see any deficit. So um, it seems like um, the cells in the, uh, and I wonder if the dentate uh, granule cells are actually more for um, enabling plasticity in downstream region CA3, and that's where the memory is stored. So there's lots of um, 
behavioral paradigms in the neurogenesis field uh-huh. um, other than fear conditioning, right? So there's that Morris water maze, for example, um, that all seem to be some type of DG-dependent learning. Uh-huh. Um, in my opinion, the fear con- uh, context conditioning seems to be the only one that is consistent throughout all the papers, right? Um, and that it shows a deficit in people who have knocked out neurogenesis. And in one paper, there, um, Renee N. published paper in Nature is saying that when you upregulate neurogenesis, increase neurogenesis, that they saw an increase in um, fear-based learning um, as opposed to all the other types of uh, behaviors. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if you can just offer why it is this one particular paradigm works and all the others that are also DG-dependent don't work. Yeah, <laughs> so that's a tough one, right? So, um, so actually, fear conditioning um, is not—it's not—it's not universal, right? So, and there are different ways of assessing uh, context fear conditioning, right? So you can look at just the ability for the animal to acquire fear of a particular place, um, and another thing people have been looking at is sort of the, the precision or the specificity of that memory. You know, so if you acquire fear in context A. Um, is your fear really specific to A, or will you also be afraid in something similar to A? Um, and uh, one idea that's popular now is that um, that the dentate is important for being able to discriminate between things that are similar. And so in that paper that, that you cited by uh, Rene, um, the argument they're making is actually that um, you don't really need neurogenesis for learning that context fear. But what you need it for is for for keeping that memory very specific and not generalizing your fear to other other similar contexts. Um, and that idea, you know, has a pretty sound basis, um, and it it comes from uh, this computational you know uh, work on uh, saying that the dentate does pattern separation, right? And the idea is. Um, you go from anorhinal cortex, which in the rodent is maybe 200,000 cells, to your dentate gyrus, which is maybe a million cells. So you're mapping um, a representation um, in a smaller population onto a larger population. And what that means is you could potentially take um, uh, a memory um, and uh, uh, represent it uh, by a you know, relatively smaller set of cells. And that, what that potentially allows you to do is to take different memories, um, in a dentate anyway, and give them completely non-over, people can't see my hands, <laughs> completely non-overlapping, um, neural ensemble rep- representations. Um, that's what a lot of people think the dentate does is take, you know, these overlapping representations in the anorhinal cortex and map them onto distinct sets of neurons. And, um, the question is like, what does that, how does that show up in behavior? You know, um, because in behavior, we really don't, we're not hundred percent sure, you know, how context A and B are mapped at the level of the anorhinal cortex and the level of the dentate gyrus. It could be that, um, uh, they are, they're mapped by relatively overlapping or non-overlapping populations, but nobody's really demonstrated that for certain, um, and this brings us back to the thing that we were talking about before is, okay, so let's just say that um, this uh, pattern separation really is very important. You know, what is, why would neurogenesis have anything to do with pattern separation? And like Charlie was saying, why would you want to have these young cells 
enforcing pattern separation? What would be the point of having a turning over population to force pattern separation? It makes sense to have a growing population because then you can separate more patterns. Sort of, that one's easy. But if the population isn't really growing, it's harder for me to see how you could separate more patterns. If you're just, but you could be throwing away old ones, I guess, and well, as you get older, uh, you know, there's this precipitous drop-off in neurogenesis, too, and it's happened it's before old age, right? It's sort of in um, adulthood that it happens, not old age. So you would, you, on one hand, you would think that as you get older, you're accumulating more and more memories. You need the, the uh, pattern separation would become more and more taxed, um, and that you would need even more neurogenesis to keep up. But on the other hand, you might say that, yeah, maybe when you're young, um, you encounter all the novelty that you're going to encounter and you sort of separate everything then and then in an adulthood it's just a matter of retrieving stuff. Or putting it into some systematic thing that you already, structure yeah. that you already did. Yeah. So to, to locate a memory you relate it to everything else you kind of know where things fit yeah. rather than each thing is different that you have to each thing is a separate memory that you have to keep separate. If you kind of know where everything fits together, maybe you don't need to do that as much. Um, No, you may not want to go here, but uh, as you were talking about sort of generalization in the context of fear conditioning, then you could imagine if generalization is not, is is happening too much, that you start to to spill fear out into Mm -hmm. everything. You create a sort of fearful personality. Mm-hmm. Like, does hippocampus have something to do with personality? Uh, with yeah. that kind of stuff? Sort of, there's the response bias, I guess, is the cor- correct way to say that kind of thing, which is scary animals, mm-hmm. scary animal versus one that's not. Is there any evidence for anything like that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's been, particularly in the rodents, there's a, there's a really large literature on hippocampal uh, regulation of emotionality and anxiety. Um, and, um, yeah, so, um, so is there a way to, what I was thinking about is the yeah. possibility of a way of reconciling the one way we think about the hippocampus, which is this sort of chess playing yeah. memorizer of space, spatial relationships. And this other way we think about the hippocampus, an older way of thinking about it as limbic and uh, that kind of stuff. So is that, do, they, do those come together somehow? Yeah, well, so, you know, there's this dorsal or uh, dorsal ventral or anterior posterior um, uh, uh, heterogeneity in the hippocampus, right? So, um, in the dorsal hippocampus, so when people have done lesion studies, right, you get these robust effects on spatial learning when you lesion the dorsal hippocampus, but much less so when you lesion ventral hippocampus in rodents. Um, and uh, if you lesion dorsal hippocampus, you don't get very obvious effects on emotionality, whereas if you uh, lesion ventral hippocampus, um, you tend to get uh, rodents that are less, less anxious, actually. So there's, there is an, an emotional effect on the ventral lesions. Um, also, if you're looking at like place, uh, place cell representations, they're, they're much more compact and, uh, and, and uh, s- smaller, maybe more informative in the dorsal hippocampus, but in ventral, uh, they're more diffuse, not as compact. And so there might be a, a not as precise of spatial representation in the ventral hippocampus. 
Um, so, you know, I think there's something, uh, there's potentially something there where with neurogenesis, there are these, these, these different, uh, these different functional, um, uh, roles depending on whether it's dorsal or, or it's ventral as well. So one way to do that is to say, well, the dorsal hippocampus is Spock and the ventral hippocampus is Spock. <laughs> and they're kind of yeah. two different places that yeah. do, do two different things. And I was, yeah. But in the fear conditioning experiment, you're kind of messing around with both of them at the same time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, and maybe there's some, normally there's some kind yeah. of relationship between them. Could there be the same... Uh, Computation. I mean, is the same computation happening dorsally and ventrally, but the inputs and the outputs are maybe different. So that in one in one region, the computation uh, is involved in processing you know, spatial representations, whereas in the other area, maybe the same computation is is for modulating emotionality. Um, I uh, I think I, I think that's possible. I mean. One idea is that um, you know if we think of uh, hippocampus. So actually, so there's, this is not a new idea, but that the hippocampus um, is for um, comparing our expectations with reality and, and um, um, in spatial representation. It's obvious why you need to do that, right? You need to sort of um, compare your mental sense of place to your landmarks. Um, but emotionally, we're always doing that too. You know, am I, am I, is, is, uh, what I expected to happen happening now? And if it's not happening now, uh, that tends to make me feel a little uncomfortable and anxious. Um, that's a version of novelty detection in a way. So, sir, I was wondering whether people are, uh, given that some of the behavioral stuff is kind of, uh, uh, a little bit all over the place, and if as we're getting more and more control, so you did this this thing with uh, genetic manipulation plus uh, 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 and being able to inject a virus to shut it off at specific places mm-hmm. at specific times, and maybe if the optogenetics works, we'll it'll turn it off and on. Yeah. Whether longitudinal studies in individual animals mm-hmm. will make a big difference on these kinds of things. Because a lot of the studies, you have a cohort that has you know, neurogenesis blocked, and you have another one, and you compare things, and, yeah. and you do one kind of test because you, you have to get a lot of animals and so forth. Or you can imagine doing a whole, uh, a whole battery of tests in individuals and then turn off neurogenesis, do it for a while, you have very sensitive times to these new neurons, and then just keep them doing this round and round kind of thing, and then presumably they do the same sets of batteries of tests in the same individuals where now they do have new neurons, and then you can do a much more sensitive kind of thing and maybe be able to sort out you know, some of the mess, I guess. I, I, I don't know if it, people think that way is, or, or not. It tends to be, you know... There's these behavioral paradigms that people use. This is fear. This is that, yep. and, and they just stick because they have a huge history. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, um, I, I I think what you're saying is really appealing. I would love to do that, um, and I've always I've always really felt that uh, it's a shame to just you know get these produce these mice and, and you know breed these mice, have these mice exist. And uh, and just just do you know this one procedure that takes three days, um, and it's a 
and let's face it, I mean, it's you don't get very nuanced data from fear conditioning. Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, we, we strive so hard uh, to, to, to eliminate extraneous variability from our studies, and particularly in mice. Um, that's a real problem. And so um, I think when I started out using mice, um, I was trying to do what you were saying and, and testing mice in, in, in doing repetitive conditioning, doing fear conditioning, doing the water maze, in the same mice even. And you just find that um, there are these um, uh, hysteresis, right? These, this, this, you know, the, 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 the order um, has its own effect. And um, so now we've kind of, in my own lab, we, now we swung back the other way where we're extremely methodical. And we're going to do fear conditioning. We pretty much only do fear conditioning, and we do it this very particular way. And and uh, in a, in a way that I that it kind of it makes me sad because I'd like to get more data. Um, but um, mice are fickle creatures, and we really strive to, to to make everything that we do as reproducible as possible. And that's the only way to do it. Um, and actually, so. Um, I, uh, in some of our latest data, you know, we, we, we've shown how um, just the experience of uh, fear conditioning um, produces this, these long-term generalized changes in the emotionality of the animals. And so um, an, an animal that was a mouse that was fear conditioned is actually more anxious than a mouse that was never fear conditioned. And that actually surprised me because I thought, um, even though I'm a behaviorist, I really thought that um, the fear conditioning would, would, would be a more um, a strictly associative form of learning where they would learn to be afraid of, of you know, the particular stimuli that were present when they got shocked and not everything else, but it doesn't seem to be that way. Isn't that exciting, though? I mean, you've got this behavior that's able to separate out the cognitive versus the, the associative. I, I think of the associative and the non-associative as the cognitive versus the emotional part of it. And, I mean, that... I, I guess is that yeah no, very special to me uh, and I'm really excited actually about these non-associated effects and I and I think if that would I think that's going to be a, a good model system for so the, the question mark a real big question mark right is okay let's say that um, getting rid of neurogenesis makes you more anxious or makes you more more sensitive to different stressors how do you go from your dentate gyrus to your hypothalamus or your amygdala or your bed nucleus of the stria terminalis, all these, these structures that we think are actually um, on the output side, more like, you know, regulating um, anxiety-like behaviors. Um, that's a really complicated pathway, right? So you're not even at the output, you're at the dentate, you're not even at the output of the hippocampus, which in itself is complicated. You still have got, you know, at least two or three more synapses to go. Um, uh, so I think to try to pick that apart, I think it'll help to have a relatively simple model system, which I guess we maybe we've hit upon right now. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, this has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop with Michael Drew. Thanks.